Well, again, good morning to all of you. I want to encourage you now, grab your Bibles and turn them on to if you have an electronic copy or open it to if you have a paper copy, uh, to the book of Ephesians. We're going to go to Ephesians 6 this morning. And if you don't have a, a digital copy or a paper copy of God's Word, that's okay. Right you. There in the pew, there is a copy of God's Word. We encourage you to uh, grab it. Uh, fact of the matter, the page number I'm going to be on is in your bulletin. So, as um, we just study together. And as you're going to Ephesians 6, let me ask you a question. How many of you here have ever heard uh, of this little thing called Google? My guess is, even if you don't use Google, you know about Google. Yo, and, and when Google first started, it was a great search engine. And that's what it was designed to do. It was to help bring a world of information right to your fingertips in less than a second. Unfortunately, what has happened over these last several years is that what started out as a good thing kind of had a, uh, a nefarious morphing into something different. Let me just quickly demonstrate it for you. Guys, I hope you've marked your calendar because this Thursday is Valentine's Day. So let's say you had forgotten that and you're like, oh man, I got to get something for my wife. Okay, so you're going to log on to Google later today and you're going to type in Valentine's Day gifts for her. And you're going to search and you're going to look at all this stuff and then let's say you get tired of searching. And for some of you, you have social media accounts. So you pull up social media, and you're just starting to, to scroll through your social media accounts. Have you ever noticed that after doing a Google search, all of the ads that are on your social media feed are for things like what you just searched? Or maybe you're not much of a, a searcher on Google, but you like YouTube. I mean, after all, there's a lot of interesting stuff on YouTube. So you go to YouTube and you start searching all these videos and you watch five or six of them or so. And you decide, um, I, let me check social media again. Have you ever noticed that after being on YouTube and watching some videos, that the likes and pages and all of that stuff on your social media is similar content to what you had just been watching on YouTube? Now, why is this the case? Well, Google has some tracking software, some algorithms that every search you do, every video you watch, all of these things, it starts to create a profile of you. They, they discover your likes, dislikes, and all of this stuff about you just by what you search or by what you look at, the websites you visit. Now, some of you are going, well, hey, I'm in good shape. I don't use Google. Not so fast, because the same algorithm, the same software is located on 75% of the top 1 million websites used. So you're using Google, and you don't realize you're using Google. And it's all creating this profile of you so they can specifically target you to do what they want you to do. Now, for some of you, you're going, well, that's fine, because I don't have anything to hide. I, you know, 
I don't really care that they do this. But I want to make the case that we really should care. Maybe you don't have anything to hide, but let's be honest. Your digital experience is being manipulated by a company without your knowledge and your permission. They are trying to pigeonhole you into what to read and buy and think. Okay? Let, let me give you just a, a simple proof of this one. Let's say you have a conservative political leaning, or you can have a liberal political leaning, and you've got a friend who has the opposite political beliefs. It is possible, based on your searches and everything else, that you both could be the same story that would have a different headline and a different set of slanted facts. For this reason, they want to draw you in as a customer, and so they create this profile that will help them determine who you are And so what was meant to be a good thing is honestly driving the very division that we're seeing in the country. Because the news is no longer the news. It is opinion based on slant, depending on which side of the aisle you're on. But, you know, even as a societal issue, again, the the thing that was created to help you is actually creating division. And so it is manipulating you personally and us as a society. And that should be something very concerning to us. Now, maybe you're sitting here going, what in the world does this have to do with unity and the scripture we're going to look at? I'm glad you asked. Because, see, Satan was created by God, which means Satan originally was created as good. He, he was meant to glorify God, serve God, lead the worship of God, however, because of sin, that which was created to do good has now gone on a mission of disunity, division, dissension, and all of these other things. Satan is a mastermind of misdirection. He wants you to pay attention to something over here while the whole time ignoring what's going on over there. He wants us to believe that either he's no big deal or he's got more power than he actually does. And what we need to understand this morning as it relates to our sermon series on the one is this. One of the greatest enemies we have to unity within the church is Satan. How do we know this, or why is this even important? Well, the one big thing this morning is this, that we all have an external enemy that we must wrestle with daily. We've got to acknowledge him. Why and how? Well, let's look at it together. Ephesians chapter 6, I'm going to start in verse 10, I'm going to ask if you would stand as we read God's word together. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Let's pray together. Father, again, we want to just praise you for who you are. 
We thank you for the time of worship we've been able to have through music. And now, Lord, help us to worship, to proclaim you worthy as we study your word. Lord God, I pray that it wouldn't be my thoughts and my opinions. And so, Father, I, I just simply ask that your Holy Spirit would guide this time of study. That we would see, hear, understand, and then respond to the truth that's going to be revealed to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Again, the one big thing is that we have an external enemy that we must wrestle against daily. So I'm going to go ahead and give you the, the outline really quickly. You've got it in front of you. We're going to talk about who our enemy is. We're going to then talk about what are his tactics. And then we're going to finish up by how can we respond to this text and live in the unity that Jesus gives us. So let's begin to break down who is this enemy that we talk about. Well, Satan, number one, is real. Look there in verse 11 as Paul identifies it. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles. That's the tactics or the scheme of the devil. First Peter 5, 8 that we read this morning. He is recognized as our adversary. And so Peter and Paul, Jesus spoke of him as well, as well as in the Old Testament. The scriptures declare that Satan is in fact real. Now, Satan, again, he loves to misdirect or misguide our thoughts about him. Fact of the matter, if I was to ask you, when you hear the, the phrase the devil or Satan, I would ask, what is the first thought that pops or picture pops into your mind? And for the overwhelming majority of you, the first picture that pops into your mind is this, a cartoon figure in a red suit with horns and a pitchfork. I mean, let's just be honest. Who can take a cartoon character in a red suit with horns and a pitchfork seriously? We would laugh at it, and that's exactly what he wants us to do. He wants us to not understand who he is because it causes us to misunderstand what he does. Now, this isn't going to be an exhaustive study of, of the doctrine of who Satan is. But let's talk about just a few things that Scripture reveals about our enemy. The first one is in Ezekiel 28, we see that Satan was created by God as an angel. Then in Isaiah 14, we see that this angel had the name Lucifer. Still in Isaiah 14, we learn that it was pride that led to the sin downfall of Satan. Okay, if we were to go other places, multiple places in the Bible tell us this. That Satan was in fact that serpent in the Garden of Eden that tempted and deceived Eve and led to the fall of man. We see in 1 Peter 5, 8 that he is roaming the earth seeking whom he may devour. All right, that is that Satan is trying to bait us in, with a temptation to dishonor God through sin or to disbelieve who he is. Now, Satan cannot be at all places at the same time like God. So, he is either on earth trying to cause us to sin or doubt who God is, or if you went to the book of Job, you would find this, that Satan does still have access to God. 
And when he goes to the throne, guess what he does? He seeks to accuse the brethren. That is, Satan is always launching attacks and accusations against true believers. This is who he is from a scriptural standpoint. And Satan tries to keep us from hearing the word of God. Because he knows this. If he can keep us from hearing it, then he keeps us from believing it. Because when we believe what scripture says, then God will save us from our sins. But even if he can't keep you from hearing scripture, he wants to keep you from believing scripture. He wants us to get into these debates that have been raging for decades now in our nation about, well, is the Bible literal? Is it true? Does it still apply today? All of these things understand that this is the work of Satan trying to steal the word of God from unbelievers and to keep it from taking root in a believer. And so you have a very real enemy, but it's not all bad news. Because number two in our text here is this, that Satan can be resisted. All right, again, verse 11, Paul says, stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, how can we do that? Well, look one verse previous. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So church, how can you and I resist the tactics, the schemes, the temptations of Satan? By resting and trusting completely in Jesus. You and I are powerless on our own to resist Satan. And he knows it. That's why he tries to isolate us. Because when he isolates us, he goes to work on our minds. And he can wreak Havoc. And can, I mean, can we just be really honest? He's really good at isolating us, and he's really good at going to work on our minds. This is who he is. But we can resist him as we rest and trust in the Lord. Now, how do we do that? Look at verse 12. Okay, uh, verse 11, excuse me, it says, Put on the whole armor of God. And he would spend from 13 through the rest of the chapter, for the most part, talking about what is the armor of God. And how do we put it on? Well, we put it on with prayer. And we put it on so that we can stand firm. Stand firm in what? The truth of Scripture. Our number one weapon against the lies and the schemes and the temptations of Satan is the Word of God. This is what you have to, this is your sword. The sword is both offensive and defensive for us. But Satan can be resisted. You know, so many times when you and I make bad choices, because we want to deflect our responsibility, you know what we say? The devil made me do it. In reality, you got a one out of three chance of being right. I don't like those odds, honestly. Honestly, Even if he was present, he didn't make us do it. Satan doesn't possess the power to make you sin. He can dangle that temptation in front of you, but it is our free-willed choice to give in to it. 
And we have to understand it. We have to acknowledge it. That sin is our personal responsibility, our personal choice that we do. And the final truth of who Satan is, is this. That he has already been defeated. Church, we're not trying to fight for victory. We are fighting from victory. Now, why do we know that Satan has already been defeated? Good question. Because of the first promise we ever see of the gospel in the Bible. If you were to go with me to Genesis chapter 3, you would read this in verse 15. And I will put enmity, that's division or hostility, between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is the first mention of the gospel. It's actually a reference to the, the cross and the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, let me set the context for you. God created everything in, seven, in six days, rested on the seventh. When he finished, he declared everything was very good. Satan comes in, he tempts Eve to doubt God's word and rebel against God's will. They do. So God comes looking for Adam and Eve. Okay, he pursued them. They try to hide. God finds them. And so he is beginning to pronounce judgment on Adam and Eve because of their sin. But now he is talking to Satan in in verse 15. And basically what he is saying is this. Satan, you are going to inflict pain on the Messiah. You're going to inflict pain on Jesus. Now how do we know that? Well, again, look at verse 15. It says that you shall bruise his heel. It's a reference to the crucifixion in this. That when a person's arms were stretched out, nailed to a cross, what they would do is the chest collapse in. It's hard to breathe. And so what they would do is they would dig that heel into that vertical beam and push themselves up so they'd get a good breath. And they would lower themselves down. And so it would bruise the heel. And so here what we're seeing is God is telling Satan, yeah, you're going to inflict pain on my son. You're going to crucify Jesus. But look, at previous, it says, it or he shall bruise thy head. Now, how do you kill a snake? You cut its head off. So God is saying, you're going to inflict pain on Jesus, but he is going to defeat you at the cross. That by his death, the penalty for sin had been paid. But by his resurrection, it proves that there is eternal life. That death has no power over the believer. That death is not something that you and I should fear or dread, but rather we should celebrate. Because when we breathe our last here, we know from Scripture to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Where there's no sin, there's no sickness, there's no pain, there's no shame, there's no guilt. I pray to the Lord, there's no calories. Okay, y'all still with me? Y'all kind of quiet. I was just checking. All right? But, I mean, here's the thing. Like, death is something we should celebrate. Because as a child of God, death has no power over me. God took what Satan meant for bad, and he redeemed it for good. That's why... Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that death is swallowed up in victory. 
that death for the believer is a release from all the pain and suffering of this life into the glorious presence of the God who died for us. And we will worship him forever. And so I want you to know that yes, Satan is real. Yes, he tempts us. Yes, he, he helps us trip and fall. But the final reality that I want you to grasp is this. He is dead and defeated. He has no power. He's been defeated, church. So we're not fighting for a victory over him. We're fighting from the victory of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But again, he's real. So what does this mean? Well, it means that you and I need to know how to recognize his attempts at causing division. Remember, we started this series all the way back in the first part of January. And it's titled One, that we would be one. So how does Satan cause division in the church? Well, if you're there at Genesis 3, you stay right there. I'm going back up to the beginning of that chapter. All right, Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 1, it says this. Now the serpent, all right, Satan was more subtle, clever, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Satan's not a dummy. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden. But of the free fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto, her, unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So how does Satan try to cause division in the church? Two things you'll see in there on your outline. Number one, he tries to attack God's word. Satan's first tactic is to cause doubt on what God said. How do we know that? Look at, ver again, verse 1. Hath God said... Did God really say that? Did God really mean that? Now, if you're wondering how powerful is the doubt that Satan can cast, does it work? Look there in verse 3. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. That was Eve responding to the question. The problem is, Eve added to what God said. How good is Satan at attacking God's word? He's so good that he'll have us add to what God actually said. Because God said, don't eat of that one tree. Eve says, oh, we can't eat it. We can't even touch it. And so he causes us to struggle with doubt because he attacks God's word. How does he do it? Through false teachers. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 11 that Satan comes as an angel of light. Satan doesn't show up in a red suit, horns and a pitchfork going, Hello, I'm Satan, and I'm going to try to get you to doubt God's word. He comes as somebody who sounds good, but then slips that lie in. In church, if you're not in the word of God daily, you will fall to his doubts and his lies. But Jesus didn't leave us defenseless. 
All right? How can we know if we are under the power and the sway of a false teacher? Well, Jesus said this in Matthew 7. You shall know them by their fruits. Now, I'm not against online church, so please don't misunderstand what we're about to say here. Okay? Sometimes listening to another sermon is a great thing. Sometimes it's the only thing. You know, especially in winter. I mean, who knows? You might have 70 degrees one day and 18 inches of snow the next. That's just how Virginia winters roll. So sometimes you have to, you're watching something, you know, online or, or listening to a podcast. It's okay. All right, I've got five or six guys that I listen to regularly during the week. But that's not meant to be a substitute for regular corporate worship together. Because when all you do is listen or watch a service online, you know what you're missing? You're not getting to see how their life is lived. Is their life reflecting what they're preaching? See, one of the greatest things that false teachers do is they will say the right things, but then they live the wrong way. That's why it's so vital for you to be a part of regular worship and a church family where you can spend time with the pastor and with the leaders and with other brothers and sisters in Christ because you want to make sure that what they're saying is how they're living. And I don't care if it's here. Why do we give an outline every single week for this reason? We give you the main points, but I hope you, you jot down some notes. If nothing else, scriptures that I remember for this reason. I want you to hold me accountable. I want you to go home and read those scriptures that I, I reference. I want you to know that it is the Spirit of God that is teaching you. Because a false teacher will sound good, but they will slip that lie in. And if you're not immune with the antidote of Scripture, you're going to believe something that's not in Scripture. The second way that Satan seeks to cause division is this. He attacks God's character. It's there in Genesis 3 and verse 5. See, if Satan can't cause you to not believe Scripture, then he's going to try to cause you to misunderstand who God is. Now, how does he do this in verse 5? Well, again, look. For God doth know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Here is what Satan is saying. God is trying to withhold something good from you. He doesn't want you to have the knowledge he has. problem is they already knew good and evil. They already knew right from wrong. Why? Because God had told them. Right was you could eat of every tree in the garden. Wrong was to eat from that one tree in the middle of the garden, that knowledge of good and evil. God wasn't trying to hinder Adam and Eve or keep something good for them. God was trying to protect Adam and Eve from themselves. And the reality is God is still trying to do that to us. Because our greatest enemy is the inner me. 
My greatest enemy is when we are tempted to believe that God wants me to decide what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. Church, God has never given us that option. He has said what's right and wrong. He has said what's good and evil. But Satan is coming to to Eve and going, well, I mean, wouldn't you think that God wants you to have that knowledge? Like, shouldn't you be able to decide what's right and wrong for you? And, be, and before you try to, to go, well, I mean, this was back in Genesis. That's, that's like thousands of years ago. That's not now. Can I show you how it actually is today? Just really quickly. What we ultimately see in this is the narrative that began years ago with the homosexual civil unions. Those that were in favor of letting these couples marry would say things like this. Well, you can't help who you fall in love with. Everyone deserves happiness. They ought to be able to choose what makes them happy. This was the narrative that was being pushed. In other words, oh, no, no, no. You can't trust the Bible because what you think is right is better than what God says is right. And we have swallowed it, hook line, and sinker. We have completely taken God off his throne and put ourselves on it. See, God has already said what's right. And he's already said what's wrong. We've also seen it here recently in the abortion debate. Okay? If they don't come out and go, well, we just want to kill babies because we want to kill babies. No, no, no. What what they've couched it as is this. Well, it's a woman's right and it's her body or you know her life is in danger the same God who created that life in the mother do we not believe that he is powerful enough to protect the life of the mother do we believe that God is so uh, powerless that it depends on us to do the right thing that we have to do it I mean do we really think that we have so much power that we could change and thwart the will of God. But this is what's happened. I mean, entire denominations are falling by the wayside. Why? Because they've taken God off the throne and put themselves on the throne. And that's nothing new. It's right here. It's how Satan fell. It's how Adam and Eve fell. It's how you and I fall. When we believe that it's up to us to decide what's right and wrong, we have replaced God. There's another God ahead of the only God. It's idolatry. We want the right to decide because we have been led to believe that God is withholding something good from us. We have been led to believe that I know better than the one who created me what's best for me. And so let me just ask you this question. Since we've gone down that road, has our nation become stronger or weaker? How can something that's good for you weaken you? How can something that's supposedly good for you drive you away from God's word? The answer is it can't and it won't. God is the source of truth. Where you and I may disagree with something God says, 
we are wrong 100% of that time. We cannot adjust the Bible to fit our lives. We must adjust our lives to fit what is taught in the Scriptures. And it's not just society. You realize that these things have come into the church as well. We're tempted to believe that when a church has problems, well, the answer is simply, let's get a better leader, let's get a better pastor, let's get a better worship music, let's get better youth programs, let's get better children's ministries. Again, understand the wickedness and the deception of this. We are saying that we know better of what we need than God does. Instead of looking for something better, why not rest and trust for God to make us better? So we know who he is. We know what he does. So the question becomes, how do we deal with it? How can we walk in the unity that God has given us through the blood of Jesus Christ? Well, I want to recommend three things to you here very quickly. First, I would say this. Be aware of Satan's tactics. Church, we cannot afford to be ignorant of how Satan will come at us. You want to know the number one way Satan comes after us? Listen to what it says, James chapter 4 and verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The number one way that Satan causes disunity and division in a church is to cause the people of that church to believe that their personal preferences are more important than the will of God. When we choose to go or not go, based on what makes us happy, we have taken God off his throne. Our selfishness and our desires to have things our way and for our happiness is the number one way Satan causes disunity in a church. We see everything God has given us and we want to use it for us instead of God. We've got to be aware of that. Second point of application would be this. We need to remember who God is. John said this. Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. Jesus is more powerful than anything and everything you and I will ever come up against. So if we are resting and trusting in God, tell me, church, what can harm us? What can kill us? What can take us out of the love that God has showed us through Jesus? Answer, nothing. We've got to understand who Jesus is. We've got to understand the power that exists in God. Where sin did abound, grace did abound much more. The reality is every one of us in here is a sinner who deserved God's judgment. But in his grace, he sent his son to die in our place. That I'm not powerful enough to overcome Satan, and neither are you. But as I trust in God, as I depend on him... Guess what? He gives me the power to resist that temptation. Fact of the matter, uh, 
Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation is overtaking you that is common to man. But God is faithful. Man, I would underline that in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure the temptation. I want to take a quick rabbit trail here. There's a lie that, that is from Satan that, that I hear an awful lot. God won't give you more than you can handle. That is a lie from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. God will frequently allow you to be in situations that are over your head, too hard for you to difficult, too difficult to deal with, and that on your own would break you. Why? So that you can see that he is sufficient. So that you can see he's all you've ever needed. This verse, and... The reason I took that rabbit trail was this. A lot of times people quote this verse as proof of it, but that says temptation. A temptation is not a sin. It's an enticement to sin, but it's not sin. But what we see in that verse is this, that God is faithful, that when Satan or our sin nature dangles a temptation in front of you, God is more powerful than that temptation, and he makes a way for us not to give in to that temptation. How? Well, it's the third point of application that's up there for you. Be in prayer and Bible study daily. That way of escape of 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is prayer and the Word. There is no substitute for praying and being in the Word daily fact of the matter, if you haven't prayed and you're not in the Word, you don't have the armor on, and Satan is not only going to launch attacks at you, but they are going to hit their mark. Now, you put on the armor, guess what? He's still launching attacks. I, I got to be honest, the last two weeks of the, uh, it, for people in this church has proved that Satan launches some attacks, but they don't hit their target. Why? Because God, who is faithful who has given us the armor, defends it. Why do I need to be in Scripture? Why do I need to pray? Well, King David wrote two of the greatest reasons. They're in the longest chapter of the Bible, Psalm 119, and it's this. Psalm 119, verse 11. Thy word have I hid my heart that I might not sin against you. Remember, temptation isn't sin. It's an enticement to sin. So what do I do when I'm enticed to rebel against God, I go to God's word. This is the way of escape. This will tell me how I cannot give in to my own sinful, selfish nature, but rather can resist it to the glory of God. The second reason is this, Psalm 119, verse 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Do you want to know the decisions you need to make? Do you want to know the path you need to walk? Go from the one who's writing your story. Because before you were ever born, God wrote the story of your life. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship, created to do good works. 
And so if you want to know, how can I avoid giving in to this temptation? How can this stronghold be broken? How can I know what's the right decision to make? Is not go ask 100 people. It's go to the Word of God and allow Him to speak. And when He speaks, you've got to trust. And sometimes that's hard. Because what God's asking you to do is probably the last thing we want to do, right? And sometimes what God's asking us to do, we're going, Lord, I can't do that. And that's his point. He's like, hey, you got it. You can't, but I did, so I got this. Trust me. The more I read Scripture, the more I learn to trust Jesus Christ for everything I'm facing. Because there's not a force of hell that had has not come against Jesus Christ that he has not repelled back. But if we're going to walk in unity, if you're going to be victorious in your life, you've got to know how Satan's coming at you. You've got to remember the power of God and you've got to get in the Word of God. Would you stand with me as we're going to pray together? Father God, as, as we move into the next appointed part of Scripture and time of service, Father, we want to do so specifically. The specific purpose of this time is a response to who you are. For that's why we have spent the last 30 to 40 minutes declaring what your word says, because your word reveals you. Father, I pray for those who may have never trusted you as Lord and Savior. God, I pray that the word is revealed to them that they are a sinner who is lost, but there is still hope because of the grace that can be found in Jesus Christ, dying on that cross and rising from the dead. Your word says that if we would confess our sin, if we would turn in faith to you, that we would be saved. And so, Father, I just pray for that soul that is the furthest from you right now, that this would be the day they would turn to you and you alone. But, Father, I also pray for those who are battling things that's trying to break them. Things that are causing doubt, fear, concern, confusion. Father, I pray that they would just bring those things to you. To know that you are who they need. You're who we all need. And Father, if there's a sin that we're struggling with, Lord, let us not keep it in the darkness, but let us drag it into the light through confession, knowing that as we bring it to you, there is forgiveness and there is freedom. So, Lord, let us, as we sing, respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. As you're standing, we're going to sing hymn 134, Jesus'